So I preached this passage last year, and I was really excited for it because for a long time I've been really fascinated by just all the ways that John in his gospel patterns what he says after the book of Genesis. And so I had a really hard time figuring out another sermon, and so I'm going to do the same thing. We're going to sit a little bit in the gospel of John and look at the ways that he uses the Genesis story. John does this from the very beginning. In the beginning. The prologue for Genesis. Prologue for John. And he's going to do that in lots of different ways throughout the gospel, but it's really going to ramp up when we get to this crucifixion story. I'll give you a few examples. When Adam was in the garden, after he had sinned, after God had come down and confronted Adam and laid this oracle of, of what was to come, the consequences for Adam and Eve's sin, God says, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. When Pilate has Jesus in front of him, he says, behold, the man. God says, behold, the guilty Adam. But Pilate says, behold, this man. He's a new Adam. But even Pilate knows that this Adam is not guilty like the first one. He's innocent. He's faithful. There's another one. Look at his crown of thorns. Remember the curse that God lays on the ground after Adam has sinned. Cursed be the ground because of you. All of your labor is going to be hard now. The ground's going to bring forth thorns. But the new Adam doesn't bring a curse because of his disobedience. Instead, in obedience, what does Jesus wear on his head? A crown of thorns, a symbol of the curse on his head, on the cross. Or remember how Eve was made, formed from the rib of a sleeping Adam. But then Jesus, in the sleep of death, is pierced in the side, and out of that wound comes the, the birth of the church, the water of his baptism, the blood of his covenant, Jesus' bride. John does this over and over because he wants us to see that Jesus is the new Adam. Jesus is the new Adam. But what I was actually really interested in this time is that, yeah, if Jesus is the new Adam in the story, we can also see how there are old Adams all over it, bad Adams. Adam, I wonder all the time what it feels like for you to hear sermons like this that are just Adam, 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 old Adam, new Adam, good Adam, bad Adam, 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 Adam. Mute. <laughs> Look at these old Adams in this story. People who just like Adam, when God came after Adam and Eve had sinned, when God came down to walk with Adam and Eve but couldn't find them, what were Adam and Eve doing? They were hiding. Look at all the old Adams who were hiding, maybe literally but also figuratively in this story. We've got Peter. Peter's hiding from association with Jesus because he's afraid of the consequences. We've got the Jewish leaders. Maybe they're not literally hiding, but they're hiding. They're hiding behind the things that they know. They're hiding behind the law. They're eager for Jesus' death, but they're also eager to pass that responsibility on to Pilate. Look at Pilate hiding. Pilate's hiding behind his power and his authority. 
And he's shifting the blame back to the Jewish leaders and ducking all of Jesus' questions with these silly, vague, oh, what is truth? Pilate's hiding too. Later in chapter 19, after our reading, there's a wealthy man named Joseph of Arimathea. And he wants to go to Jesus' tomb to prepare the body. But he does it at night, in darkness, in secret, because he's hiding. He doesn't want to be found. But with all these people who are hiding, literally or figuratively, Jesus gives us a stark contrast. Jesus doesn't hide. When Judas and that band come into the garden, Jesus simply says, I am he. He doesn't hide and he doesn't run. When he's standing before the high priest, he says, I have spoken openly to the world. I have said nothing in secret. When Jesus stands before Pilate, he doesn't beg for mercy. He doesn't make his case. He doesn't try to persuade. There's no shame in Jesus. There's no guilt in Jesus. There's no blame shifting in Jesus. There's no hiding. It's just like we read in Isaiah 53, 7. Like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. But what we do see when we go forward in that story is that this Jesus, who has no shame, no guilt, no reason to hide, is going to enter into that shame for us. Yeah, you can see it in the mocking. You can see it in the insults, in the beatings, in the crown of thorns, in the robe. But you can also see Jesus reaching all the way back to that story of Adam and Eve in the garden. Remember why Adam and Eve were hiding. They realized that they were naked. And they were ashamed. Remember God's answer to their nakedness in the garden. He gives them new clothes. They were naked and ashamed, but God covered them. But here we see that Jesus has been stripped of his clothes. Soldiers are trading his garments. So this Jesus, who doesn't have any shame or any guilt of his own, has entered into the shame of Adam and Eve, entered into that nakedness that caused them to want to hide. But he's not hiding. He's actually displayed for everyone to see. And it's not just like Jesus is reenacting that story because he wants to make a point or because he wants to identify with us or he wants to make us feel better for all the shame that we have. It's more than that. Think about how God clothed Adam and Eve with the skins of an animal. A living creature had to give up its life for Adam and Eve to be covered for their shame to be taken away. For Adam and Eve's guilt and shame to be covered, there had to be a sacrifice. And so now look at Jesus on the cross, the sacrifice for all humanity, a lamb slain so all guilt and all shame could be covered. It's not just identifying with us or making a point. He's covering us. Think about those words that we just sang shielding sinners with his blood. But I also think that we can look back at that picture of Adam and Eve huddled in the bushes, hiding in the garden. And I think that we can also see ourselves there. And this is what I want us to settle on tonight. Because I do think that so much of what we do, so much of what drives us, is our own compulsion to hide. Again, maybe not literally, 
But how much of the things that we do, how much of that is an attempt to cover our shame with something like respectability or meaning or value? Think about something like money. We might chase money because it's just easier to judge your life based on the amount of money that you've made or the things that you have. It's definitely easier to do that and to say that I've lived a good life than it is to stand before the God of the universe without shame. You might actually succeed at making some money. Maybe not Jeff Bezos' money, but money. But you won't be able to stand before that God without shame. Something like success. Success is easier to pursue, easier to attain. You can work well or climb a ladder or raise a family or make something beautiful. You can do all sorts of good, hard things and succeed at them, and that's way easier than standing before the God of the universe. Success is a good place to hide. Moralism could set up a rigid moral code, hit people over the head with it, say, look at how good all the things that I've, uh, I've done are. It's way easier to look at the things that you do based on some sort of moral code that you might set for yourself and say, I've been a good person, I've lived a good life. It's way easier to do that than to stand without shame before the God who sees the secrets of the heart. Something like knowledge, we can hide in knowledge. This hit me at seminary when I started to realize that I was learning all sorts of good and holy things and that they were not actually equating in my growth and godliness. We can hide in all sorts of knowledge or expertise. And it's so easy to say my life matters because of the things that I know. The things that I know matter. It's easier to know things than it is to stand before the God of the universe without shame. We can hide in knowledge. Or something as simple as pleasure. It's easier to immerse ourselves in a hobby or an exercise or in a sports team or to just watch five hours of Stranger Things in a row and enjoy it and at the end say, this was a good day. It's easier to do all of those things than it is to stand before the God of the universe. And so we can hide in pleasures and distractions. So the truth is that we have all sorts of tools at our disposal to cover ourselves, to build hiding places for us that would try to conceal us from others or from God. We might be able to deceive others. It's less likely, but I guess it's possible that at least for a short amount of time we could even deceive ourselves, at least for a little bit. But not that God. Hebrews 4 says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Imagine if all the secrets of your heart were projected on a screen for all to see. Even the things you don't want to see in yourself. The things that make your stomach tie up in knots when you remember them or when you get a glimpse of them. God sees all of those. God sees those things. And yet still there is Jesus on the cross. Stripped and bare for us so we could be clothed in his righteousness instead of our own shame out in the open for all to see so we could be set free from the things that would drive us into hiding. Even in today's darkness, when we're here remembering, looking at our king of the universe on the cross, 
mocked as the king of the Jews, we know that in that Jesus, there is no need to hide. He has covered us. Even in the darkness, he has shown light in our hiding places. Because he is there, we can stand before God without hiding. Because he is there, we can stand and not know shame because he has covered us. He has covered us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.